you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Stephen Jurovics, author of Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action and Climate Change, a really interesting book about climate change and religion for Christian and Jewish audiences that, among other topics, demonstrates that climate change is a biblical issue as well as a scientific one, and it also discusses several measures to mitigate climate change. So, Stephen, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. So, let's start with the obvious question. What made you write this book? Um, Well, I wrote the book because I wanted to motivate Christians and Jews to become actively engaged with the climate change crisis. Multiple surveys have been done about public opinion on climate change, and one by Stanford University found that over 70% of the people accept the science of climate change and want the government to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So it's clearly reality. I mean, we, we have two climate refugee populations in the U.S., one from Louisiana and one from Alaska. The federal government had to relocate them because of rising waters. Mm-hmm. Tangier Island off the coast of Virginia is slowly being taken over by rising waters. Miami Beach is spending about $1.5 billion to raise some sidewalks and roadways. So people understand what's underway, and what I thought is they they must make a decision. Do they want to become involved in pushing the government to fund climate change mitigation efforts, or do they do nothing because the problem seems overwhelming? Our sacred text call us to become involved, not just Torah, but I think about Pirkei Avot. You are not required to finish the task, but you must avoid it. So that's really why I wrote the book. I find it fascinating when you, you know, at the start of your reply, you said to motivate Christians and Jews. And, and I really, as I looked at the cover of the book, which I got in front of me, um, and it's full of Jewish symbols and Christian symbols. And then I open up the book and um, it starts with the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. The first half of the book is a section called Environmental Teachings in the Bible Jesus Knew. When you were talking, you talked about Christians and Jews. I don't think I've ever had a Jewish author um, who wrote so much for a Christian audience. So why that focus in particular? Well, it had that focus really because of the numbers. Uh, Jews comprise about 2% of the population, Christians about 65%. So if my aim is to encourage people to act on climate change, I need to focus on the larger group. And for for a Jew, this is relatively easy. Most of the explicit teachings about the appropriate relationships between humans and the natural world occur in Torah, mm. what the Gospels call the law. So this is this is familiar territory. And I found it I, I found it such an interesting focus 
the I, I actually thought a lot of what you wrote in this book was quite brave. There's there's one statement, bold, brave, however you want to put it. You put you said Christianity lost touch with many of the teachings embraced by Jesus. What did you mean by that? Because that's a that's quite a statement for a Jew to say in a book for Jews and Christians. What did you mean by that? And what did you hope to motivate through that question uh, through that statement? Well, I I meant that the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. And in making the New Testament the dominant text and focusing primarily on it, Christians lose touch with the Bible of Jesus. Um, He referred several times to the Law and the Prophets. The Law is the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So I just wanted to sort of reacquaint Christians with that basic text with that Old Testament. In the first five books of the Christian Bible are Genesis through Deuteronomy. They know that. But I think that except for readings from the lectionary, they don't get that much exposure to it. Mm. And I wanted to, to say this, this teaching is part of your theology. So it wasn't a rebuke as much as it was saying... Here, you know, the the central person in your religion, here's what he knew. Therefore, bring yourself into awareness of how he lived his life or the texts that he used. Yes, exactly. Do you think, as I'm hearing you speak, would it be fair to say, and and maybe this is not, maybe you're not the right person to ask here. um, Would it be fair to say that in your experience, Judaism through Torah, at least, let, let's, put, let's put it that way. Torah is more concerned with this world, um, and maybe the developments of Christianity are also concerned with the world to come. Does that affect the way that we view the environment? Uh, the, does that, is that feed into part of how do we form a response to climate change if, if our primary focus is on the world to come as opposed to this world? Yes, um, I think that to some degree, that is truly a perspective within Christianity. Although there is a book by Norman Wurzba, I think it's called The Paradise of God, in which he states very clearly that is an inaccurate view. Mm. He's a professor at the um, Duke School of Divinity. So he argues that that's really not the case. But indeed, Torah is uh, a text of this world. You know, I sometimes jokingly say it's how to live on earth for dummies. I mean, <laughs> this is what we're supposed to do. In particular, it gives us the appropriate interrelationships between humans and the natural world. So, yeah, I think you know, that's, that's what you're saying is, is, is right. I, I sort of share that. So, I mean, I've read the book, for, but for those who haven't yet read it, when you talk about an appropriate relationship between ourselves and the world, how do you envisage that relationship? What kind of examples can you give? I mean, I, I know you had a section on Noah and biodiversity. You had a section on, on paying attention. And you quote Shema. Um, you have a section on treatment of animals and the way that we eat. And, and So what for you is an appropriate way to live on Earth? Well, I look at the first covenant of the rainbow, and it's very clear that covenant is made with all life on Earth. It's not just made with Noah and his family, but it's repeated over and over. This is made with all life on Earth. So, to some degree, we are supposed to process that the camel and the dog and the 
horse nor rabbit all have some understanding of this covenant. And and in Exodus 19.5, God says, Kili all the earth is mine. Mm-hmm. And the psalmist picks this up with, um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So I, I think that this is part of what I was, what I was picking up and what I was saying. Let me ask, when the, when the Torah is written down, when it's handed down, the view of the world is much, much smaller and compared to our worldview today. And I don't mean in terms of the, the awareness of infinity, but what I mean is um, we are aware of so many different biomes on Earth, of so many different species that were, couldn't have been conceived of back in the Bible. When we're told in Noah that God makes a covenant with all the earth and therefore we feel like we have a responsibility to protect that earth, that's one thing in a Torah mindset. In a contemporary mindset, knowing so much as we do about the world, can that get overwhelming and could that be disempowering? How can I possibly help save all the world when it's just so enormous and I'm so small? Well, that's uh, that's a very interesting question, but I kind of go back to sort of the basic perspective. In the Noah episode, it is very clear that God is telling Noah to save all species. That's that's sort of one of the takeaways, and I think scholars have seen that as sort of a proof text for preserving biological diversity. So that is that is you know that is one teaching that we should hold fairly close. And when it is pointed out that we are complicit in the loss of species, mm. that should bother someone who sees themselves as a person of faith. And, you know, if you look at the way things are taught about animals, for example, that's part of why I organized the book in terms of treatment of animals, treatment of, of the land, and so on. Um, there is a concern for the the sensitivity, the well-being, certainly the sentient nature of that animal. Mm. Do not muzzle a weak animal to a stronger one. Do, do not yoke, rather, a weak animal to a stronger one. Mm-hmm. Do not muzzle an ox while it is threshing out the grain. There is a clear concern there, and we have, you know, in my view, utterly abandoned that, you know, particularly with factory farming. Mm. Can we get back to that? Should we get back to that? I think we should. I, I think I have a reference in the book to, uh, to an English writer who pointed out that the nutritional benefits yeah. from uh, farm-raised animals you know, as opposed to factory-raised animals is absolutely different. So we're not getting the nutrition, say, from an egg that our grandparents did. And, and yes, I think we should get back to it. Yes, I remember reading where you literally talk about the different vitamins and how um, how they're present differently between factory farmed and and so on. I, I was stunned by that actually. You know, I guess you know I'm a rabbi, but I also come from a scientific background. So when I see data in front of me, and, and I and I think, wow, that's extraordinary. That really resonated with me in a very tangible way because you can say, well. You know, um, factory farming is bad. It's bad for the animal. But then you, if you turn around and say, but, but actually this is what happens to the food when it's factory farmed. It's, it's literally not as good for you. That I found really startling, actually. 
Oh, thank you. Yes, I when I read that book, Ruth Harrison's book, Animal Machines, I was also astounded by that. I sort of wish there had been comparable studies in the United States, but I don't know of any, and I really can't think of someone who would want to fund those. Right. Well, there might be, I guess. Well, look, we need to take a pause. When we come back, I'd love to hear about the response to your book, how you've been reaching people with your book and and what the response has been. So we're going to take just a a little bit of a break. Uh, You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Stephen Jurovics, author of Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action and Climate Change. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Stephen Jurovics, author of Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action and Climate Change, a really interesting book that challenges Christians and Jews to rethink the way that they have a relationship with Earth and then really moves into some concrete practical steps. So, um, Stephen, I'm just uh, wondering, how have you reached people with this book? Well, um, I, I reach people primarily through talks in churches, usually the 45-minute uh, session before the 11 a.m. service, and sometimes in evening teachings. Um, in addition, the book got some quite good reviews, which I imagine helped reach people also. And, and there were two major events. The, the uh, United Methodist Women selected Hospitable Planet for its 2018 reading program. Mm. And that helped connect with 1,000 to 1,500 people. Mm. Then uh, Education for Ministry, a four-year educational program of the Episcopal Church, selected the book as a common reading text for the 2020-2021 season for its over 6,500 participants. Mm. That was major, and likely each event had an outwelling effect. So that's and- really how I think I and what's the reaction been? I mean, that's, it's wonderful to hear. Have you had feedback? What's the reaction been to the book? Well, from the talks I've had, the reaction has been quite good from both Christians and Jewish audiences. People want to understand clearly how climate change is a biblical issue. And in presentations, I offer this in one sentence. Climate change is a biblical issue because some of its effects for which we bear responsibility, are contrary to biblical teachings. Hmm. And then I identify those effects and and connect them to chapter and verse in Scripture. And and for me, reading the book, being able to to reflect, I mean, I appreciate I come from uh, a rabbinic perspective and an environmentalist perspective and so i was reading through going yep yep absolutely yep but i found myself thinking i wonder how many people don't know this and you're introducing this to them because it's it's an extremely accessible book which i think is is really important it's not a a massive dense academic tome it's really i love the way that you're spelling out each different chapter and 
And here are the core essences, as you put in environmental teachings in the Bible, Jesus knew. Um, and so I, I like that return. It's almost like a return to biblical values without any of the patriarchal challenging gender issues. Return to the the environmental teachings in particular of a, a simpler time where we were more connected perhaps. Yes. I, I've got to ask – you mentioned Lynn White Jr.'s talks um, from, was it 1966, 1967, the historical roots of our ecological crisis. That, I think, really changed a lot of people's perspectives about faith and, um, and the environment. And those presentations really quite firmly placed the blame of the environmental crisis on um, Christian ethics or, as it said, Judeo-Christian ethics. I question that phrase. You know, that th those talks were decades ago. And I wonder, since you mentioned it a number of times in your book, what still what, what statements in Lynn White Jr.'s talks, what statements still hold up and what do you think doesn't hold up anymore? Well, I think a lot of it does hold up. Uh, I think White is correct in saying that many people interpret, gen interpret Genesis 1-28 as saying that essentially the earth is ours. Mm -hmm. have dominion over or rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the animals that move on the ground. And I think he was correct in asserting that such a perspective gave permission for an it's-all-ours view of the natural world. But he was wrong in accepting that interpretation. I think that's the flaw. And as I point out in the book, just six chapters later in the Noah episode, we read, and Noah did all that God commanded. Mm -hmm. Noah did not rule over the birds of the air and all of the animals. He did not make decisions about which go into the ark and which do not. Mm. God told him what to do. I think the Noah episode casts a doubt, at least the first episode of casting doubt, on the sweeping interpretation of Genesis 1.28. Mm. Moreover, as you know, the, the, the land is not mentioned. Right. So, you know, how do you have free reign over the earth if you don't have dominion over the land? Right. And, you know, and Exodus 19.5 makes clear that we do not. You know, kili all the earth is mine. And I think for me, one of the challenges with Lynn White's talks is um, when you blame environmental crisis on... on a particular reading of biblical text and then look around the rest of the world where environmental crises happened without any influence from biblical texts, such as Easter Island. You know, they didn't basically push themselves into essential extinction because they read the Bible and thought, well, we need to have dominion here. It seems as though there's something within humanity itself which leads us to take wanting to take more and to extract from the earth that almost needs to be tempered with that biblical sense of the whole earth is mine, not mine as in the human beings, but mine as in God's. So for me, there's a, there's a challenge to those talks just in the sense that it's not just biblically based societies that have had environmental crises. Oh, you're absolutely right. No, this is not exclusive to us. I think it is within the nature of humans that we are a viable, uh, you know, violent species, and we will conquer 
whatever is around. You know, there was, uh, I forgot the name of the writer, but there was a writer who talked about that within a relatively short period of time, humans wiped out all the land, huge animals that moved on the land. Mm. You know, we were able to figure out ways to kill whatever uh, was in opposition to us. So, yes, I absolutely see that as, as just part of human nature. And that's why I kind of see um, Torah as this is how you're supposed to live on Earth. This is living on Earth for dummies. You know, get it. This is the appropriate relationship between you and animals. Um, you know, we have the the doctrine of um, you must have a concern for the mm-hmm. well-being of, of animals. You know, you're not to um, cause them pain, bring the distress of, of living creatures. You know, we, we must have a concern for the distress of living creatures. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of Torah, and um, if we can think back of that, see ourselves as people of faith, process that, and say, maybe I need to change something. Um, Mm. As you mentioned about the nutrition from food is not what we think it is, that should be a very powerful motivation to say, wait a minute, this is how I get all my nourishment, this is not so good. I think one of the questions when I when I hear you about you know living on Earth for dummies and think about using the Bible as a, a source text almost for um, a a better relationship with the Earth. Let's put it like that. The difference is, of course, that there are now seven billion people on this planet with resources very inequitably distributed. Um, so is it possible to go back to that given the number of people on earth and the way that – I mean essentially if we're going to return to a sort of biblical relationship, it means we have to grow our own food again. It means we have to end almost global transport of food. I mean it seems to me like there's huge implications socially, economically. Is it possible well, it's certainly not possible overnight, and right. I am only speaking to Christians and Jews, so I'm not looking at the world as a whole and trying to think about, you know, what what should Muslims do, what should uh, Hindus do, mm-hmm. Buddhists do. Uh, I'm really, you know, speaking distinctly to people for whom this is a sacred text, and think about what incremental changes can we make to bring us closer to what our values, our teachings are telling us to do. Uh, so it is an incremental, I mean, if we started on the path, it would take a long time to make some adjustments. But I, I think that considering if we want to move closer to the appropriate relationships between humans and animals, we can slowly make that change, but nothing's going to happen quickly. Mm. But I think it would be beneficial to, to think about that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that response. You know, sometimes when they say think globally, act locally, you know, we can't we can't dismantle the entire um, global economic network in a day. But we could perhaps change the way we eat or the way we get food. I I appreciate that. I, I hear from what you're saying. The word authenticity comes into my mind. It sounds like what you're looking for is an authentic biblical relationship with the earth. Would that be a, a, an appropriate way of, of explaining part of your work? 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a very good word. I, I think that that is sort of what I am aiming for. Um, it was really to to point out the perspective that the Bible gives us on how we are to interact with the land, how we are to interact with animals, and think about how we can move closer to that, and also think about how violating that or acting contrary to that has been so damaging to us. Mm. We're on the precipice of an environmental catastrophe, and we can't make significant progress on it. At COP26, you know, very weak, and yet we're just about heading over the waterfall. Uh, if, if that's what our societies and governments have come to, uh, this is a sorry state, and I wanted to sort of have people of faith reconnect with their sacred texts and, 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 and see what it is really asking of you and think whether you personally are going to get involved. Well, I think partly as we look at COP26 and, and yes, it's extremely weak agreement, which people won't, governments won't stick to anyway, because they've never stuck to any agreements. Very few countries, I shouldn't say never, very few countries have stuck to the Paris Accords and others. I wonder if your text is subversive in a positive way of saying we can't wait for governments to do this. We have to do this ourselves. We have to do this as individuals. We have to do this as faith communities. The the onus, yes, you mention about voting and, and, and voting for people with appropriate policies, but at the end of the day, it's also about us and the way that, you know, politicians respond to the people. If the people aren't doing anything, the politicians don't feel compelled to. Businesses do the same thing. If there's enough pressure, if people want to buy lots of green things, then businesses start providing it. So I wonder if there's almost something subversive, positively subversive in your book to say we're not going to wait for these institutions, but our faith institutions are, they're the ones that are, are going to help take us forward. Yeah, yeah, that's a really beautiful way of expressing it. Um, I, I, I do think that the faith, but the faith community can have a profound effect on our political institutions. And I'm not saying that we should uh, enact public policy based on religious teachings. No, sure. I believe in the, completely in the separation of church and state. But I believe that our, our perspectives, our faith perspectives, our faith traditions can motivate us to act. Uh, I think the science is clear absolutely clear, and we just need to, to, to get motivated to act. I mean, if, um, if we, we have the power to vote people out of office. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, we said in the 2022 elections to a politician, I don't care what else you do, but if you don't support action to mitigate climate change, you won't get my vote. Right. Okay? That's it. That's the bottom line. Then you sort of neutralize gerrymandering because... People are not voting political party. They're voting essentially their self-interest. Right. And you're making it clear to a politician, you will not get my vote unless you tackle this problem. And I really appreciate the way that you're, you, you, especially in the second half of the book, mention so many practical steps for us to, to consider as well. I, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I really do want to thank you because um, it's a really interesting book. I'm so pleased that um, it's proving to be very successful amongst Christian and Jewish communities. Uh, and I do encourage our listeners to, to have a look. It's Hospitable Planet, Faith, Action and Climate Change 
by Stephen Jurovic. So, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on our show. And um, thank you so much for, for bringing this important issue of, of reconnecting in an authentic way through our faith back to the land. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Thank you again to Stephen Jurovic, author of Hospitable Planet, Faith Action and Climate Change. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>